Lovely to see you again. And if you're new, welcome. Great to have you. And I know that you won't regret signing up.、Uh, I personally found the second part of this interview super interesting. So here's George again talking to Shahar Hamari and Tom Choder. So if the two of you don't don't feel like it's just you know just the political system, even though that might be playing somewhat of a role, what is the you know what what does explain this, or how would you you account for this、um, you know this picture of stability? You know, major party domination, as we said, centrist centrism con- continuing, some kind of technocracy. Is it? You know, do you have to reach back to the the kind of the longer historical trajectory? I mean, we we did want to talk a bit about、um, the Dominion mode of development. I mean, is this a central piece of it? Is this kind of、um, longer term? I guess mode of economic development.、Um, I mean, is is if that is the answer? I guess full on question. Like, does this mean that、um, Australia and New Zealand are kind of stuck in the end of history forever? But we can maybe put put that one to a side because I think it might be good to just,、um, yeah. Could you maybe just tell tell listeners a little bit what is this Dominion mode of development? Well, maybe Tom can take away the actual argument, but I'll say just one thing before that.、Um, one of the issues that liberals have, I'm not talking about liberals as understood in the United States, but liberals.、Um, Is that they think all good things come together, so they see that centrism in Australia and think, "Oh wow, you know, I mean, there must be a bunch of good things that came together to create this very stable political system."、Uh, and what do we have to do to replicate it? But I guess the argument that we're going to put to you, and and we're still working out, is that actually one of the reasons why these countries have that stable form of government today is actually. To do with, as you say, going back quite some time, but actually, it's these countries' rather problematic or,、uh, origin as dominions of the British Empire,、um, and the kind of kind of development pathway that it put them on from the very beginning. Right? I mean, that's kind of the basic thesis that we're arriving at. I, I don't know, Tom. Do you want to get into it a little bit? Yeah, so I think you know we we like to think that we coined this term, and we're not quite yet sure because we haven't done a proper literature search yet. But we think there is something to the fact that the these two countries were dominions of the British Empire, so they were settled in a very specific way. And it seems there's a lot of similarities of Canada as well, though we haven't looked into that in more detail. But I think the importance is that you know they were settled as、um, you know in the famous Australian phrase terra nullis. Obviously, on the assumption that these were empty lands,、um, even though obviously they were not, there were people here occupying it.、Um, but they were settled rather than just colonised in the way that other parts of the world were colonised by the British.、Um, and very quickly, they were settled with immigrants.、Um, you know, initially in Australia's case, obviously with、um, with people sent there to to prison, essentially.、Um, you know, New Zealand uh, people uh, came from Scotland and from the rest of the UK for land. Um, which they bought or stole or fought over from the Maori,、um, and it was essentially settled by white settlers throughout the 19th century.、Uh, 
Um, and then all sorts of policy restrictions came in to keep it that way. Um, you know, I think, you know, the, the sort of the notion of a white Australia policy is quite well known, at least in Australia, I assume maybe overseas as well. You know, when Australia, the different Australian states federate into the federation in 1901, the first law they pass is the white Australia policy, which essentially blocks immigration to anyone who was not from, well, initially from the British Empire and, you know, to later, later on, who was not white. Um, and they had all sorts of, um, you know, cunny, uh, canny tricks to try to keep people out by giving them um, tests in a European language that was not of their own language uh, in order to see if they were suitable to, to settle in Australia. Um, New Zealand also had a white New Zealand policy, although it wasn't as pronounced, um, and essentially and it kept, um, you know, kept immigrants um, out from, from they were not, not from the, the old country. But the effect of that is that labour was incredibly scarce in both countries, um, and that gave right. labour a much more prominent role in the politics. They have a work as a much more prominent role in politics, a uh, much more powerful role in politics than um, than in other parts of the world. Um, the consequence of that was a high wage, high consumption economy. Um, essentially, um, you know, in Australia, this was called the Australian settlement. Um, essentially, white Australia policy restricted labour markets. Um, there was a very much a centralised um, corporatist wage arbitration process set up very early in the, right. in the 20th century. Um, there was a lot of protection for domestic industries. Um, there was basically a, a, a promise of high wages that was delivered, that was, uh, that was guaranteed to workers in Australia and New Zealand. Um, and there was an incipient welfare state, which grew especially from the Great Depression onwards and grew after World War II, uh, but it never reached the level of of other developed countries, never reached the, the level of other Western countries. And you know, so we've uncovered all sorts of interesting statistics about this, um, about the different levels of spending on um, on welfare between you know, Australia, New Zealand and the rest of the Western world, but also interestingly on the standards of living in Australia. Now I'll let Shahar tell the story um, about, uh, about our great uh, comrade who, um, who wrote an article about Australia and New Zealand and how good the workers had it, um, what, probably about 100 years ago now. Let's, well, uh, let's uh, hear it. Uh, dear friend of the podcast, uh, V.I. Lennon, actually wrote about Australia and New Zealand back in the day. He was fascinated uh, by Australia and New Zealand because he saw them as uh, working men's paradise. And I'm saying men because actually women didn't benefit from a lot of those uh, uh, benefits to begin mm -hmm. with, uh, and certainly a lot less over the years. But he um, was interested in accumulating economic statistics um, in order to kind of make sense of uh, what was going on. Um, and we, we found those statistics somewhere. And essentially, um, in the early 20th century, average meat consumption in Australia, according to V.I. Lenin, none other, mm -hmm. was um, 239 pounds per person. In France, at the same time, it was 77 pounds per person. Yeah. Okay, so that's, I'm not very good at maths, but it's a lot less. Yeah. Um, in Germany, yeah. it was 111 pounds uh, per person. In Britain, 112 pounds per person. And even in the United States, which was a relatively rich, high consumption economy, it was 150 pounds per person. So meat consumption in Australia, and this is average across, and, and you know, including most working people, was actually very high. And the standard of living in Australia yeah. was second to none in those days in terms of what working uh, people, their families could afford. Um, so that's the high wage, high consumption pathway mm -hmm. that Australia has been on from the very beginning 
Um, and also it was a high productivity pathway in a sense that mm. for exporting industries, because wages were high, there are always investments in improving productivity because otherwise you just couldn't turn a profit. Now, of course, there was also mm. a, you know, a very hospitable setup because Britain was buying, at, at that point, Britain and British Empire were buying a lot of the products that Australia made and mostly their agricultural products uh, and, and mineral resources, sort of more like raw commodities. Uh, but still, it, it was enough to sustain a very high consumption economy combined with the protections for the domestic industry that existed here. Um, so that had a, a huge a, a huge significance for the kind of development that you get in the coming years. Yeah. So just to kind of summarize then, it was this, you know, this particular mode of, of settlement and restriction of immigration that led to this um, this meat-filled paradise. I guess you can have this, this vision <laughs> of like this is um, Australians like barbecuing all the time i think it was it first country to ad adopt a eight hour working day paid leave high sugar consumption as well um i think you guys were saying and so shrimp it's like, on the barbie yeah so shrimp shrimps on the barbie all all day every well not all day every day after you've done your eight hours of, of working day and so this is mm. you know so lenin could um <clears throat> could gaze across uh, i was going to say across the sea the other side of the uh, the globe and think um this is working men's paradise as it were he also observed, you know, like the, the, that article he wrote, he was scathing about the prospects for a socialist revolution in Australia and New Zealand because of that. You know, he basically said the workers have it too good. You know, they're, they're never, never going to, you know, develop class consciousness and overthrow um, their bosses if they're you know, chopping down meat all the time, which I think sort of speaks to that that's very much centrist, uh, you know, moderate political culture mm -hmm. that emerges out of that settlement. Although um, it has to be said that, uh, and, and again, this is something that maybe people today are not that familiar with, but the biggest supporters of the white Australia and presumably also the white New Zealand policy were actually the Labour parties uh, because Labour had a very strong stake in keeping Labour scarce here. Business was actually in favour of opening up immigration. And that's not exactly how things turned up more recently. You know, re more recently, Labour tends to be uh, more pro-migration and, and so on. But at least, you know, in terms of discourse, I mean, not necessarily in terms of policy, but back in those days, Labour was quite quite strongly against opening up immigration and, and in many cases actually adopted quite, uh, not, not quite, very racist language in order to justify that. Um, so mm. it, it had those elements. And this is what I was saying before, not all good things come together. You get a very high wage, high consumption economy, high productivity, all, all that kind of stuff. But you also get racism. In Australia's case, you get you know, basically uh, an, an attempted genocide. You get a whole range of different things happening alongside that that are not savory at all. Um, yeah. Just get forward a little bit or more. If, if this is the, the starting point or one of the um, really key um, trajectories that comes out of this dominion mode of, um, of development, what, what happens next essentially? Or how does this, you know, just get forward, I guess, a little bit to the to neoliberalism. You know, how did this hit in Australia and New Zealand, how did this work? Because I, I guess to relate it back to this end of end of history thesis, like this is an important, at least in our argument, you know, this is the, the post-war settlement contradiction un undermining itself and, and leading to this, um, um, to this period, you know, before the end of history. Um, so, yeah, so to take us, I mean, you can either take us through from, I guess, the early 20th century to neoliberalism or just 
how did the, how did that kind of um, I guess the epochal transformation that was experienced in the rest of the world um, hit in Australia, New Zealand? I think I think maybe I can start off just by just giving a, a few statistics of what it's like today, and then maybe. Tom can talk a little yeah. bit about the, the process, uh, but it's important to really compare, I think, where we're at in, with Australia and New Zealand uh, within the wider context of the West, the OECD at least, you know, the richer countries in the world. Um, and it's quite a different kind of place. And, and those earlier uh, developments, even though white Australia, white New Zealand are long gone, you know, a lot of these legacies are still with us um, and, and they really matter. Um, so one example is that Australia even though it doesn't have that centralized wage bargaining that you used to have, it still has the highest minimum wage in the world. New Zealand has the third highest minimum wage in the world. Okay, so that legacy of the high wage economy remains today. And the key issue that explains, I think, why these countries politically weathered um, the shift in liberalism better is that both of them basically operate on high wages, but not so much redistribution. As as as, uh, as as the key to low inequality, because the next point right. is that actually their levels of inequality are also quite low by Western standards. They're not as low as what you get in some of the Western European countries, but the level of taxation are, are just so much lower. But it's the inequality in both countries is much much lower than you get in say Britain or the United States. Qu- quite quite um, quite a, a significant difference there. But then if you look at, you know, the level of taxation across the economy, Australia is ranked 30th out of 38 in in the OECD. So it's one of the lowest taxing countries in the OECD. It's actually ranked just above the United States, Um, even though um, presumably that's partly because the United States also uses a lot of it for defense. (laughs) But we're not going to get into that. But um, Australia actually has uh, almost the same level of taxation as the United States and well below the OECD average. New Zealand is roughly at the average, but it's also 22nd out of 38. So it's also in the bottom half of the OECD in terms of taxation. So we don't tax much, relatively speaking, in these countries. Social spending is also not very high in these these countries. So the level of welfare to GDP in the OECD is about 20%. In Australia, it's about 16.7%. In New Zealand, it's 18.6%. So both countries spend less on social spending whatever that may be, mostly on health, actually, in these cases, than a lot of other countries. So what you get as a result is that you don't really have as much of that phenomenon of the working poor that you get in other countries uh, because the wages are quite high. So notwithstanding some more recent changes that have happened, we can talk about in terms of access to housing and so on. But up until recently, at least, if you have a job, you, you can actually do okay. Right, um, and and most people were employed, so that also leads to a lot less resentment from the taxpaying middle class of the undeserving poor, which are often defined in racial ethnic terms. So that's that's quite significant, and we also have far less working class resentment towards immigration, for instance, because migrants are not stealing their jobs, uh, if if you want to talk about it in those terms, because you know, the wages are still quite high. People are not taxed very highly. So there is a, a very different political sense to how these things play out in these countries. Interesting. I wasn't aware of that, I guess, 
that kind of structure of taxation and, and and wages, which I guess would would lead potentially you might you might say to stability. Um, but I guess in terms then, or maybe over to you, Tom. Like if that's if that's the picture today, did did neoliberalism sort of change that? Because um, I think you know one of the things that or one potentially kind of um, more like loaded way to put it was like, did neoliberalism work? in Australia and New Zealand. This is something which um, I think we wanted to to discuss a little bit because you could potentially make this argument that, you know, it had very different um, effects in Australia and New Zealand than the rest of the world. Um, so, yeah, what, would you go as so far as to say neoliberalism worked? Are you a paid-up neoliberal, the two, both the two of you? Actually, it's good now, not wearing your Bungacast T-shirts, but your kind of Thatcher and Reagan T-shirts potentially? Exactly. The truth finally comes out. We're always uh, near Bull Shills um, here to yeah, here to talk the talk the good word. Um, ironically, in a way, it has worked in New Zealand, Australia, or at least it's worked much better than it has elsewhere. It's certainly in the Western world. Um, and there are, there are a number of reasons to do with that, um, which which we can which we're going to talk about. Uh, but I think it's important also to note that. You know, the sort of the shift to neoliberalism or to shift away from that mixed economy post World War Two. Um, Australian settlement that we describe in Australia in a sort of very interventionistic um, state in, in New Zealand, um, that almost something had to happen in the night by the 1970s and 80s. That both systems were in deep crisis, and New Zealand was essentially bankrupt. Um, Australia, you know, was um, was scoring high. I think was it the second worst on the OECD's misery index in 1983 in terms of you know a combination of inflation and falling living standards um, and falling wages and so on. So both of those dominion models had run their course, not the foundations of them because they've continued, you know, like high wages and so on, but that mode of organizing the economy definitely ran out of steam, especially once the British, um, you know, did that um, great historical moment of joining the EU or the EEC in 1973, which we know worked out very well for you guys. Um, but that didn't work out very well for us at all because, in fact, that meant that the colonial market, the, the British imperial market that we had access to for over a century suddenly was gone. Um, you know, both Australia and New Zealand spent some time trying to negotiate trade deals with with the EU to regain some of that um, access to that market, but it never really happened to that extent. So that went away. Um, that sort of the, 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 the closed nature of economies caught up with us, debt caught up with us, the balance of payments was a big issue in New Zealand. Um, so something had to be done. But interestingly, in New Zealand and in Australia, neoliberalism was implemented by the left. You know, it was both done by the Labour Party yeah. in the 1980s in sort of the original third way. Um, you know, mm. before Tony Blair even had an inkling um, of, of, you know, of, you know, of becoming great and having the hand of history on his shoulder, uh, New Zealand and Australia were already doing what he would end up copying. Um, Australia in a more, much more... Um, nuanced way in a way because it wasn't as as, as deep as a deep of a crisis uh whereas new zealand just sort of you know dove headfirst into neoliberalism and really basically stripped basically that whole insulated economy that mixed economy model that was established from the great depression onwards was very much stripped apart throughout the 1980s by the labor party of all parties um but essentially the same thing happened in both countries that you know is a very familiar story to, to most of us trade liberalization the end of industrial policy capital account liberalization, the currencies were floated, um, microeconomic reform to start to to, um, to encourage competition in the economy, uh, the erosion of worker protection, 
essentially the undermining of unions and the end of the sort of centralized wage bargaining system, which had delivered such high wages. Um, and, you know, wages have con continued to be high, but they haven't risen as, as, as quickly as they did during that mixed economy era. Um, and th but this, th this essentially reorganized those two economies. And, you know, we started, we began this podcast talking about the lucky country. You know, that book came out in the 1960s, 1970s, foretelling the crisis that would come in Australia and you know, by extension in New Zealand, when, you know, that luck would run out, you know, the British would close their markets to us. Um, you know, right. we could no longer stay closed off from the rest of the world in Australia and New Zealand. And, you know, now our, our, our capitalists would actually have to work hard in order to, to innovate, in order to become competitive once the sort of the doors are opened to the global markets. Um, and to an extent they did. Um, to an extent they continued relying on the state through outsourced services and outsourced um, sort of privatized um, industries that were sold for, you know, for a pittance as they were elsewhere. Um, but, you know, they had to become much more competitive. Um, you know, so to that, to that point, it's a very similar story. Now, I think the key difference is that is the location of Australia and New Zealand, which is on the doorstep of Asia. Um, and this, you know, this period is also the beginning of sort of the Asian century success story, right? Not initially China, but eventually China. Uh, but, you know, all the sort of East Asian tigers development stories that, you know, you've discussed before, and, you know, for example, about Singapore, um, you know, the Southeast Asia also um, increasing um, in, in prosperity and, you know, often demanding the sort of things that Australia and New Zealand had, um, agricultural products and in, in Australia's case, um, minerals and, and natural resources, which New Zealand does not have. So New Zealand is very much an agricultural exporter, it becomes you know, a much more um, open and liberalised but agricultural exporter, um, as does Australia, but also has and gets to rely on its minerals. So. I think that's the beginning of that story is that, you know, the, the crisis comes and something has to happen. Um, it happens under Labour parties, which is unusual, um, unusual for the trajectory of neoliberalism. And in Australia's case means that it doesn't happen as sort of, you know, it's not Margaret Thatcher's uh, sort of neoliberalism. Um, you know, it is the unions are brought along for the ride, even though, you know, there's an, um, a famous accord signed by the Labour Party government and the union movement, which yeah. promises moderation of wage demands in exchange for sort of social wages and increases in funding for healthcare and these sort of things, yeah. some of which would never really happen, but it brings the union movement abroad, um, on board. So it's not a positional. Um, as I said, in New Zealand, that's a bit less less of a story because the crisis is much more deeper then and they can't just rely on, on mm -hmm. um, you know, digging iron ore out of the ground. Uh, but essentially, it is not, um, you know, it is not as, 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 um, as, as abrupt as it is in the UK. Um, and certainly, you know, no one's firing every single traffic air traffic controller like Reagan did. Um, so neoliberalism sort of is introduced as a necessary thing, as it was in many countries or perceived as a necessary thing. Something had to be done. Um, but it sort of comes along at the right moment for what's happening on the doorstep, which is the rise of Asia. Um, Shahad, yeah. do you want to add anything to that? Yeah, I think just a nice little kind of, uh, you know, I, I like to sometimes think about these things in terms of, uh, you know, indices or statistics. And, and, and one of the interesting ones in relation to Australia and New Zealand is there is a Harvard uh, index for the complexity of a country's economy. And in the neoliberal era, both countries decline massively. So Australia was ranked 55th in 1995, which is the first year the index was published. It was probably even higher previously because by 1995, Australia's manufacturing was all but gone pretty much uh, once protections were removed. Um, but then in 2020, it was 91st. 
So it declined. I mean, 91st is well below many, many countries that um, are much poorer than Australia. Mm. It's something with Angola, I think. So the reason for that is Australia's... Sorry? Are you assuming that that complexity is is good? I mean, couldn't it be a simple but, you know, knows what it does, economy that's just like... Hard, honest. Steady as she goes. Does one thing but does it very well. No, I guess um, that's a really... That's that's uh, yeah, but it does. I mean, that's quite a striking like decline. It's what happens when you basically liberalize trade. Uh, And Australia and New Zealand are true believers in that respect. You know, they're the one that drank the Mm Kool-Aid. They're the one that did these things all the way. Not like the United States, which always retained a fair degree of industrial policy and and all that kind of stuff. In Australia and New Zealand, neoliberalism was neoliberalism. You know, it was like a proper thing. Um, But when you do that, um, it's not surprising that manufacturing, which was never in Australia particularly productive, it was mainly kept going by uh, using tariffs. Um, once yeah. they were gone, it almost got eliminated. Um, and then we shift back to the things that Australia has always done and has always done very well and has actually been very productive in, partly because of how it was settled. And these are mainly agricultural products and mineral resources. Um, and when you have such a big market at Australia's doorstep, in that sense, that was enough. Um, that's what the markets wanted. And it's not always a bad thing if I'm allowed a a little anecdote here because um, in May um, 2020, I believe, you know, so it was after the pandemic, Australia was the first country in the world to demand an international inquiry into the origins of the coronavirus uh, in China. And that angered the Chinese government enormously. Uh, And what followed was a sequence uh, of formal and informal um, kind of blocks on Australian trade to, um, to, to, to China. Certain things were just not able to, um, to be exported. And China was, in some cases, the biggest market for a lot of those products. One of them is coal, but there's a bunch of others, barley, beef, all sorts of things, right? But because Australia was not sitting inside this really complicated value chain, this you know intricate supply chain, it was just selling shit that he dug out of the ground, basically, uh, not to put a finer point on it, it was relatively easy to find new markets because, you know, the markets that China was buying from, you know, let's say instead of buying, um, I know he kept on buying here, but coal, let's say it went to Indonesia to buy coal from Indonesia. Then the countries that were buying coal from Indonesia started buying coal from Australia. So it just had that replacement effect and it didn't actually have any real impact on the Australian economy. Now, the Chinese, of course, were very disappointed when that happened, but the Australian government um, was quite delighted. You know, it sort of gave them a, a new lease on life at yeah. the time to uh, go out and say all sorts of things. Um, but not every country can do that. I mean, Germany has massive levels of investment in China, and they're really worried about the kind of stuff that's happening at the moment because it has a very different impact on, on German industry. So that's actually a way in which economic simplicity actually has worked in Australia's favor, if you like. To maybe to put you on the spot in terms then i guess of how all these kind of you know transitions to neoliberalism all these economic uh, aspects that we've just been talking about if, if we do have that kind of 
economic explanation? What does this mean for the for the future? For, you know, what's on the horizon? Are these problems kind of stacking up, and we're going to see a belated end of end of history in Australia, New Zealand, or something else? But anyway, just the first part of that question first. Like, yeah, I guess to put you on the spot a little bit. Ultimately, then, what you know, what explains this this immunity? We said before, not the party system. You know, Dominion mode of um, development has something to say about about it. But yeah, it's putting you on the spot. What is why why no end of end of history in Australia, New Zealand? Yeah, look, I mean, that's kind of like the quote unquote sixty four thousand dollar question. Um, and I think the basic explanation that I would provide is that. I'll, I'll say two things. Firstly, Australia and New Zealand have had incredibly high rates of economic growth in that period, in the neoliberal era. And the second thing yeah. is that both are really high wage economies and that helped spread the benefits of, of that growth a little bit better than it did in other countries. Not perfectly far from it, you know, and, and maybe we can talk about that a bit in a moment. But it's those two things coming together that actually, I think, get us uh, roughly where we are now. So when I'm saying that Australia had really amazing growth uh, over that neoliberal era, Australia had its last recession before COVID, before the COVID shutdowns, lockdowns, in the early 1990s, and then it had 30 years of uninterrupted growth. That's something that you really don't find in any other uh, developed country. Striking. Um, So... In the period for the 25 years between 1992 and 2017, Australia's average GDP growth was actually the eighth highest in the OECD, and it averaged more than 3% per annum. That's very high, but if you think about what the Eurozone, for instance, has been growing at, which is about 1% a year or something like that uh, over a lot of that period. New Zealand was also 10th highest, and it was also over 3% over the same period. So both in very high uh, growth economies. The UK was 18th, US was 14th, right? Mm. Uh, And they're close to 2% per annum. And they're not actually the worst. (laughs) Some of the continental European countries are doing a lot worse than that. Now, in the top eight, so um, Australia was eighth. And then in the, the other top seven are actually, by and large, all countries that started with much, much lower GDP growth than Australia. And they tend to grow faster like Poland, Chile, Israel, Turkey, Korea. And then you have Ireland, which is basically a tax haven, and Luxembourg, which is also a tax haven. So they skew the stats quite a bit. But if you take these two out, I mean, Australia's growth rate has been nothing but remarkable over that time, and so has New Zealand's. Now, the question then is what has sustained high growth rate over that period, right? I mean, because previously, as, as Tom was saying, both countries are not doing very well. In fact, they're in a crisis. So what, what actually made it work? Firstly, is Asia's remarkable economic rise. And, and that, specifically in the context of these two countries, has driven incredibly high demand for their exports. Um, and suddenly yep. the terms of trade, which were going nowhere for a long time, started looking really, really good indeed. Um, and that saved a lot of problems uh, for these economies. The second thing is very high levels of immigration for both countries, which increased the size of the population very fast. And that also did a lot to prop up demand in the economy and also create demand for services jobs for all these people, right? And construction and a whole bunch of other things like that. So that actually played a big part as well. And as we said previously, unlike a lot of other countries, this immigration by and large was very well received by people in Australia and New Zealand. 
Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with the particular context, which uh, I'm not going to go over again. Now, the next thing, which is, again, a familiar story, is the issue of financialization, financial liberalization, um, and high rates of credit, which have uh, enabled very high levels of consumption. Um, so that's a familiar story. But in these countries, we're talking about you know, enormous rates of credit, especially going into housing. Um, and because of already existing high rates of home ownership and rising asset prices, um, that also allowed people to consume off their equity on their housing. Uh, again, this is not unique, but that played a big part in maintaining growth and, and consumption high uh, across, across the neoliberal period. And finally, and this is probably the most important ingredient, is that high wages help spread the benefit from this growing pie more evenly. So I think that's probably the key part of the story that is maybe lacking in a lot of other contexts. Um, so if you put all that together and and um, and you mm. sort of, um, uh, and, and I guess you sort of think about the, uh, um, the problems and the kind of benefits that globalization and neoliberalism um, have um, uh, have presented for Australia and New Zealand, on the whole, they've actually been quite good compared to a lot of other countries. But they've not been without their problems either. I mean, maybe uh, we can talk about that because that's probably gets us to the second part of your question, which is that end of end of history stuff. Useful to have that. Tom, I think you were just about to to jump in there in terms of, you know, what what does this mean yeah, for the for the future, for the horizon? Because um, it seems like, you know, can these growth rates go on forever? Is it... Um, or are we just waiting for the end of the end of history? It's coming at some point. What we've dis- what we've discussed so far is very much a, a road, not maybe not a rosy story, but definitely a positive story. Um, but you know, Shahar and I are nothing if not pessimists. So I think we look ahead and we think, oh, how is this going to go wrong? And you know, there's been a number of instances in the history of both countries where it seems like things things were falling apart, and then something always comes along. That's sort of the the point of the lucky country um you know um, thesis that we started the podcast on and sort of kind of like you know you've had Wolfgang Streck on a number of times before talking about buying time and it's kind of what Australia and New Zealand have been doing for over a century yeah. buying time you know kicking the can down the road and some some sort of solution comes along but you think eventually maybe the luck will run out or may, maybe eventually the, the the conditions and the structures um will turn and you know they will not be as favorable to Australia and New Zealand and I think Looking forward, you know, doing that sort of um, um, horizon scanning, if you want to put it in those marketing terms, which I'm sure you guys love. Um, I think <laughs> yep, one of the one of the key issues is, you know, the the thing that was a benefit to us before being on Asia's doorstep now is actually increasingly could be a danger because, you know, as as as, as you're, I'm sure your listeners know, um, the sort of geopolitical competition between the US and China is really heating up, and it's really heating up here in this part of the world. And Australia, you know, hasn't found a war that it didn't want to fight alongside America yet in its history. So it is very much in lockstep with the American um, strategy of containment, I guess, if you want to call it that, in the new Cold War sort of that's emerging between the US and China um, because it has got a very strong alliance with the US. It's sort of its security strategy is based around upholding US primacy in the Asia-Pacific. Um, but it also, as we've just discussed, its economy relies on the Chinese market and on uh, sort of you know, uh, on the Asian market. So as that sort of um, as that geopolitical competition, as that new Cold War is heating up, um, maybe that balancing act is going to get much more difficult. And it's interesting. New Zealand has been always been trying to be a bit more independent in that regard, and has really tried to toe a more 
careful, independent foreign policy line when it comes to China, you know, basically yeah. not pissing China off, um, you know, from the outset by calling for a weapons inspectors like to, to go to, you know, to China and find out what happened with COVID. Um, but it's going to find that increasingly difficult to stay out of that, um, out of that um, clash because it is still part of the Five Eyes. It is still part of that sort of Western alliance um, that the US and Australia and Canada and UK are part of. Um, so I think, you know, as those geopolitical tensions heat up, um, that's going to be more difficult. Um, you know, you can't just simply rely on Asia being the sort of the dumping ground for all the stuff we dig out of the ground. Um, and, you know, Shahad yeah. mentioned just before that, you know, Australia sort of weathered the first wave of trade sanctions relatively well. But, you know, if, if, if that conflict heats up, then that's going to get much more difficult to, um, to, to manage. And, you know, it's not like China and Asia are doing that great either. Um, you know, doing better than most other parts of the world, but even China started starting to have serious economic problems. Um, you know, slowdown of growth, um, you know, a sort of a middle income trap like, um, characteristics, which, you know, means you can't really guarantee that it's going to continue buying all the stuff that we have. Um, and given the centrality of Asia to our success story, I think, you know, once that, um, once that, um, Asian sort of, um, you know, markets start to dry up, you really have to start asking what's going to happen then. Uh, what's going to happen to, this easy outlet for our exports to the high wages that are sustained by it. Uh, and once the high wages go, once the export markets go, um, what happens to social what happens to social cohesion and, and social conflict over distribution once the wages are no longer sustaining um, sustaining the benefits that everyone has seen in, in those two countries? And you know, in Australia and New Zealand, wages have been stagnant for the past decade, basically. You know, so the sort of story you often hear about the US, you know, where um, by 2008, uh, the, the, the medium wage was the same um, you know, as it was in the 1970s. You know, that was not the story here, as we've talked about. But since 2013 in Australia and sort of over that similar period in, in New Zealand, wages really have stagnated. And it's starting to give rise to some, some sort of social conflicts that may be familiar to, to, you know, to the sort of end of the end of history thesis. Um, so I think that's one thing that 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 I would that we would think about when we tend into the future is you know will the part will the music stop will the party stop uh, when yep. it comes to Asia? Um, Shahar, do you want to add anything to that or, or anything else that you think that we were we are looking for? Well, a big part of the story of what sustained growth um, and also enabled some very limited form of redistribution previously was the rise in especially home values and, and in general, the availability of credit. <clears throat> well, that story has turned a bit sour because as we mentioned at the very beginning of the uh, podcast, um, housing has become a major issue in Australia. Um, apart from basically uh, very low levels of affordability and in, an entire generation being unable to buy homes, um, and increasingly also unable to rent. <laughs> so that's that's becoming a big problem. Also, uh, the rising equity of homes has been one of the main drivers of consumption as well. So people were getting into their equity and using it to buy all sorts of things. If that's not available, that could be a problem as well. That, not to mention, we mentioned previously that income inequality in Australia is quite low by world standards. Yeah. But wealth inequality is far from that. Right. Wealth inequality in Australia is actually very, very high. Um, and um, if I remember correctly, if you look at the top 20% and the bottom 20% in terms of income, it's about times 2.5 to times 3, the average. 
if you look at wealth, it's time 40. Okay, so there's a very, very big wealth gap. Again, nothing unique to Australia. This is something that Piketty and others have been writing about for a number of years now. Um, but that kind of stuff, it's really starting to erode the foundations of, uh, of that kind of bargain that people have come to expect here um, and that I think kept the lid on, on, um, on I guess, less savory forms of politics um, as we've seen in other parts of the world. Um, so that's another thing that's potentially uh, coming up, uh, not to mention inflation and cost of living pressures, which, again, are not unique to Australia. Um, so there's a bunch of these kinds of things that are coming together. And um, I think that actually one of the uh, downsides of that kind of uh, end of history stability that we've had for yeah. a long time, because I don't want to come out of here arguing that that's been a good thing necessarily, because that's not how I think about it. Um, but one of the downsides, a lot of these things have not been dealt with for a long time. I mean, a lot of these issues have been brewing for many, many years. I mean, the asset disparity, wealth gaps, all sorts of things like that. The wages going nowhere, the, the Reserve Bank of Australia, our central bank, basically being able to determine currently monetary policy in a way that is very damaging to, uh, um, to working people. Um, the unions are up in arms about what they're trying to do. They, they actually want to bring unemployment up quite substantially in order to um, reduce inflation. Again, that's not unique, but in a time of crisis, these kinds of things are starting to, uh, to play out in, in different ways. So we are starting to see really quite remarkably, uh, a lot of uh, public resentment uh, and even political resentment of what the Reserve Bank is doing. Um, something that you wouldn't get 20 years ago when everyone agreed that that kind of technocratic neoliberal governance is exactly what we need because, you know, you don't want politicians to decide on monetary policy. Well, that's starting to shift a little bit. But Australia being Australia, no one actually wants to govern. Again, that's a familiar story to you and, and to many others that are working in other parts of the world. So even though everyone likes to complain about the Reserve Bank of Australia doing what he does, politicians don't want to take over monetary policy because then they might actually be held responsible for what happens. So they're tinkering. They're tinkering at the Reserve Bank. But that's just an, an example of how things maybe are starting to shift uh, and the public mood is starting to turn sour. Now, as Tom was saying, maybe some other silver bullet is going to come riding out of somewhere and actually you know, keep things ticking over. But then again, maybe not. Mm. So maybe time and luck are running out. But um, yeah, it would be great to have you guys back to talk more about about COVID, maybe cricket as well. Um, when the when the uh, COVID book comes out and uh, when the Ashes is is, uh, is concluded, if if England win, we can talk about it. If not, then maybe we don't need to bother. Um, but no, just to say thanks, thanks both so much for for coming on. Thanks, Shah. Uh, thanks thanks very much. Thanks for having us. Thanks, George. Thank you. Hello, we're back. And it's maybe not the end of the end of history if you're on the other side of the world. Um, if you're down under. If you're down under. Um, I mean, let's start with that, actually, um, because they do not poke holes in our thesis, right? I mean, they, they, they're signed up to the idea, but um, present, a, I thought, a pretty convincing case that Australia and New Zealand to somehow, uh, to some extent, are, um, you know, in their own little category. Exceptional. Yeah. 
if you will. I was so, I mean, I was more, I, was, I have to say I was kind of skeptical in advance um, as to the kind of case they would make um, beyond, you know, I imagine that it would rest basically on the wealth of the two countries. Um, but they made the case more in a more sophisticated vein. And um, and so, you know, I'm, I concede that there is more, you know, you can make the case more for Australia and New Zealand um, more convincingly than I anticipated. I think, I mean, with any, this is the issue, with any kind of global thesis, um, any claims that are so kind of general about world politics at the grandest, most world historic level, there will always be the temptation to you know, to kind of add flourish and to add detail and to add concrete specificity in such a way that it will embellish or call into question the underlying thesis. And Alex, I mean, you know, you kind of flirted with this yourself um, in talking about Latin America as kind of being an exception because of the obsession of the Latin American middle classes with communism so that the Cold War kind of still survives in a way in Latin America in a way that it doesn't elsewhere. So, you know, there's I get the temptation um, I, don't, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I mean, my issue isn't the temptation. I think there's always going to be holes in any thesis like this. I mean, holes, exceptions, right? Particularities, because you're drawing something at a universal level. And it's going to be, there's going to be exceptions. Even if you theorize it, you know, even if you were to theorize something, you know, make a, count, tell a story about the world, but based primarily on the British exception, even taking British examples, you would find exceptions to that story. Right? Well, so, that's the that's the point, right? And you can do it with any country in the world. You know, you will find... The U.S., Switzerland, Hungary—you know—I mean, literally any country. At a particular level of detail, you will find kind of the course. The course of the story will not run smoothly, even perhaps with the—you know—even with those countries like Italy, that we've taken as the most iconic exemplars of our paradigm. You know, you will—the closer you look, the more detail that you kind of um, examine the less it will seem to fit the general picture. Yeah. And notwithstanding that, you know, Tom and Shahar do make a do make a strong case for the exceptionalism of Australia and New Zealand, the peculiarities of their kind of Westminster political systems with moderate with um add-ons, plus their the way in which they economically developed, both in imperial times and in post-imperial times and in post um post uh, I suppose in the time of the EU and of the takeoff of the Asian, Southeast Asian economies. And so I suppose what I was struck most by listening to them is that the, you know, there's a double irony to the idea of the lucky country. So as they said, it was intended, initially it was intended critically, ironically, the lucky country, whereas it actually turned out to be true. So there was a double irony, you know, like they benefited, they initially benefited from their kind of particular position within the British Empire, um, and then they benefited when the British kind of imperial, when they withdrew from the British imperial system and Britain kind of turned towards the European economic community as it was then in the 70s. They benefited, they were just in time for the takeoff of the Asian economies and then even bigger for the takeoff of the Chinese economy in the 80s and 90s. So, you know, they genuinely were lucky, um, not just ironically, but actually lucky. Yeah, and in terms of political economy, there's a certain exceptionalism to them in that they are commodity exporters, right? It's agriculture, it's pretty much exclusive in New Zealand. And in Australia's case, agriculture and extractive, right? And Yeah, but they became that. I mean, that was the point that they, Shahar they, made. They became right. that as part yeah. of feeding into the Asian kind of economies. Yes, yeah. but they're rich, but they're rich world commodity exporters, right? Which is a little yeah. bit of its own little category. You know, if you're going to plot out into kind of 
put into circles, you know, different types of economies. Or even a table, perhaps. Uh, I, I was thinking little, something a little bit more free, free floating. But anyway, um, that you know, this is they're not. It's not Brazil and Argentina, right? Yeah. Or Chile, for that matter, even, you know, commodity yeah. exporters, but from relatively poor countries, very unequal. These are countries already with a high level of equality, relatively high wages, and who are commodity exporters and deindustrialize, or in Australia's yeah. case, deindustrializes, but continues yeah. being rich and being a commodity exporter. It's a little bit yeah. like if Argentina had worked out, you know, like, yeah. right? Argentina no, indeed, was industrialized, yeah. had an urban proletariat, etc., but then um, kind of deindustrialized, went through a series of crises, debt crisis growth stopped etc like are you saying that australia is is what argentina could have been yeah kind of yeah i mean I, mm. there's obviously there is a big about, argument you know. yeah i mean i think i mean i think you know kind of the specialists maybe there are so in fact i know there are some kind of among our listeners specialists on historical political economy and development i think will perhaps be able to argue it out in the comments and discussion on the patron about patreon sorry about um the specificity of argentina's kind of uh, development that perhaps meant that it could never could never flourish in the way that australia did but you know it's an argument to be had a new world a new world settlement that was uh, extraordinarily propitious in some ways and australia succeeded in ways that Argentina didn't. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, you know, I'm, I suppose I'm more taken with the thesis, um, than, you know, than I would have, than I was prior to, you know, to listening to the discussion, I guess I would say, you know, I would caveat two things or I would add two details. So one is, I think that the, um, there is a sense in which, it's not exactly it's that the specific it's the specificity of their end of history i think that was different right so in the sense that you know like they mentioned that the revolt against neoliberalism in new zealand led to the installation of a new more responsive party political system in new zealand in the mid 90s and so they kind of inoculated themselves against a populist uprising at a later point. Um, and so in that turmoil of the early 90s, when you had like the proto-Trumpian figure like Ross Perot in the States, um, the Maastricht Treaty and the crumbling part of the Tory government in the UK and whatnot, you know, you had kind of an adaptation of the New Zealand political system that inoculated them against kind of subsequent problems. So I think that's part of it. And the other part of it, which I think is probably important, is that they were they were also beneficiaries. So not just kind of beneficiaries of East Asian development, but also beneficiaries of a specific geopolitical strategy by the US, which was to open yeah. up China. So Nixon in the seven, you know, a specific strategy to peel, break apart the Sino-Soviet bloc or, you know, continue that snapping apart that was already taking place with the Nixon shift towards China. And so the political underpinnings are now, you know, as indicated by Shahar, you know, the political, the geopolitical underpinnings of that era are over. You know, that began earlier for them, right? It wasn't the end of the Cold War, but really began in the 70s with the American shift to China. And so that is coming apart. So I think the dates, the timeframes and the dates are slightly different for reasons that are specific to that part of the world. And I think Shahar and Tom's instincts are right. You know, that how they will navigate American rivalry with China rather than accommodation with China will give them many more political difficulties for a political class that has probably benefited from tremendous kind of quiescence and economic success, which they haven't had to work very hard for. I think that's right. I mean, obviously, hitching your wagon to China, you know, we're talking about commodity exporters, hitching your wagon to China um, works as long as China's buying. Um, but 
the to roll back to a point that you were making before, Phil, in terms of um, in reference to the observations our guests made about the political system and about their ability to channel up kind of representation to a certain degree. You know, to restate the end of the end of history thesis, it's that you know the economic problems um, don't find any political resolution, and people's frustrations with their economic situation needs a, a political outlet. And the blocking of that political outlet is what generates the crises and it generates populism and etc. Um, and this is something that you know, if you're following along on the Reading Club um, legitimation crisis, we're talking a lot about th- that there. If you want to check that out and kind of follow along this discussion at a at a kind of maybe higher theoretical level, um, but you know, to be more concrete about the Australian and New Zealand cases, there was a situation where there is a, an ability at least to. Um, channel some of that resentments, channel some of those kind of economic frustrations to the extent that there are any into politics. And actually, as it happens, there haven't really been very many economic frustrations um, in Australia and New Zealand in the same way that you would say that there has been in the United States and in Britain um, through the long period of deindustrialization and then the global economic crisis and the after effects of that and austerity and so on. So, you know, for for both the on, on the kind of economic and the political side of the ledger, um, Australia and New Zealand don't conform to the story that we tell about Britain, about the US, about Western Europe with a particular focus on Italy, and which applies mutatis mutandis around the world. And then there's always kind of exceptions, places which you can't, which don't fit the story so well, or where you have to shift the time frame a little bit, or um, you know, the Eastern Bloc, where there's, you know, its own particularities anyway. So um, it doesn't mean that the the story is wrong. It's just that, you know, you have to kind of um, cut your cloth to measure a little bit um, when you're talking about regions which just have different um, kind of national histories and trajectories of development. All right, we'll leave that here. I think that was really rich. There's a lot of um, different points kind of through the interview that we've been you able could, to take up a little bit You could say it here. was meaty. It had I could say it was fun. meaty. High meat consumption, I think. Going High on protein here. content. I, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is, uh, yeah. So we'll obviously look forward to having Shahar and Tom back on again, talking both about the kind of potential exceptionalism of Australia and New Zealand, but also looking forward to uh, reading and uh, having a discussion with them about their book on COVID, um, about you know, a country, particularly Australia, which went into lockdown really, really hard um, and how that has played out and what its repercussions are going to be in terms of you know, kind of questions of representation and legitimacy maybe in Australia. But that's it. Um, we really look forward to your comments, uh, as you, as Phil said uh, already. If you want to, um, if you have a take on this, um, we know we have plenty of listeners in Australia and New Zealand. Um, so if we're interested to know what you thought. If you have some anecdotes, also about where you live, and think like actually this, you know, feeds into the argument or it goes against it. Be really interested to hear, and we'll be discussing that, of course, at the next Alpha Bonus Bonus. But that's it from us for now. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, please remember to rate and review the podcast, and we'll see you next time. Catch you later. Bye bye.